Namaskaram. Today I'm going to be talking about verse one of the main text of Ludunapadu. Um, I call the verse in Ludunapadu this a very important one, um, particularly because it is the, the starting of the main text. This is the introduction to the to the theme of Ludunapadu. Um, I will first briefly read the verse in split form, that is, as Padachetam, a member English translation, and then I'll begin to explain it. In Padachetam, it consists of two sentences. The first sentence is, Nam Ullahum Kandalal, Nana Bam Shakti, Ulla, or Mudlay, Oppal, or Utalaye. And the second sentence is, Nam Uru Chitirumum, Sorry, Nama Uru Chitramum, Papanum, Se Padamum, A Olium, Ataneum, Tanam Avan. What that means is because we see the world accepting one fundamental that has a power that becomes many is certainly the one best option. The picture of names and forms, the one who sees, the cohesive screen, and the pervading light. All these are he who is oneself. Um, on the surface, this is a very simple verse, but it is actually very deep in meaning. The first clause uh, is a nam ulahum kandalal. Nam means we, ulahum means the world, kandal means seeing, kandalal means by seeing or because of seeing. So the implication is because we see the world. It's expressed slightly differently in Tamil. Because of we seeing the world is how it's expressed in Tamil. But in English, we say because we see the world. This clause is a very important clause because why is Uludunapadu necessary? It is necessary because we see the world. And why does Bhagavan start by talking about the world? When the aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to know who am I, what is the relevance of, uh, of bringing in the world? Uh, why should we be concerned about the world? There is a very deep reason for that. That is, we who see the world are ego. And there are two, as we shall see as we go on through this work, there are two defining uh, characteristics of ego. The first defining characteristic is that as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. This body being a form consisting of five sheaves. That's a physical body, life, mind, intellect, and will. So as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as such a body. And consequently, because we are aware of ourselves as the form of this body, we are aware of so many other forms. All the other forms that we are aware of uh, are physical forms that make up the outer universe or the seemingly outer universe and uh, mental forms which make up the inner universe, the inner world. So the, the world we see is just a collection of names and forms, what he refers to in the final uh, sentence as Nama Uru Chittiramam, the picture of names and forms. This is all just, he calls it a picture because it's just an appearance and it consists of names and forms. So 
This is the second characteristic of ego, that is, as soon as we limit ourselves as a body, this body is a small part of a big world, so we consequently see so many other things. So that which is aware of itself as I am this body, and which is consequently aware of a world, um, is, is what is called ego. That is, so, so long as we are aware of the appearance of any world, whether a seemingly external world of physical objects or an internal world of mental objects. Mental objects means uh, perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, um, intellectual uh, uh, processes, uh, likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. All of these make up our inner world. And there seems to be an external world, but actually that external world, as Bhagavan points out in verse 6, that that seemingly external world consists of just five kinds of sense perception, and sense or five kinds of sense impression, and sense impressions are mental impressions. That is, in our mind, we have impressions of sight, sound, uh, touch, uh, that is tactile sensations, smells, and um, tastes. These five. Uh, types of sensation create the illusion of an external world. That is, we, we receive these impressions and we, we, we assume they are caused by an external world, just as we do in dream. In dream, the world we perceive, the, external, the seemingly external world, is actually just in our own mind. It doesn't exist independent of our mind. And likewise, this world. So this first sentence, because we see the world, this is, sorry, this first clause, because we see the world, is, very, uh, is a very deeply significant. That is, nam, we, refers to ego. Ulahum refers to everything that is perceived by ego. In other words, nam is the subject, ulahum is all objects. All objects include both the seemingly physical objects and mental objects. In other words, everything other than ourselves is what is referred to as world. And what is the what is what is the connection between we and the world? It, it's our seeing. That is, we see the world. This is the, what he refers to in verse nine as uh, mupadi, or uh, which is a Tamil version of the Sanskrit term tripudi, which means the, the three factors of objective knowledge. That is, whenever there's any knowledge of anything, there is a subject, a knower, there's an object, something that is known, and there is also a means of knowing it. How do we know the world? Well, we know the external world by means of the five kinds of sense impression. And we know the, the internal world of thoughts and feelings a little bit more directly through the, through the inner sense organ of mind. Uh, that's why the mind is sometimes referred to as if it were a sense organ, because it's through the mind that we see all these ex internal things. So here in this first clause, Bhagavan is, um, is, uh, is referring indirectly to the Triputi, these three factors of objective knowledge. And these triputi, as he points out in verse 9, it depends on one thing. That one thing is ego. That is, without a knower, there couldn't be any knowing. 
And without knowing, there couldn't be anything known. So both the knowing and the known depend on the knower. So that's why Bhagavan begins with the subject, Nam, we. Uh, that, that, as I say, that we there refers to ego. When the reason Bhagavan uses the term we, in Tamil, there are two forms of the word we. There's Nam and Nangal. Nam is the inclusive form of we. So if you say Nam, you're including the person who is addressed. If you say Nangal, you're excluding the person who is addressed. Um, uh, so that's the two types of we. So Bhagavan often refers to, uh, uses this term Nam, which is the inclusive form of the first person, or, or the first person, plural. But obviously, they, the reason he uses a plural form, not because very many, but because when, he, when, when we are talking, it's as if there are many, and he includes us. If he says, because you see the world, it seems to be excluding him. If he says, because I see the world, it seems to be excluding us. When he says, because we see the world, it seems to include all of us. But obviously, Bhagavan, being Bhagavan, doesn't see the world as we see it. But that is something we will see as we go deeper into Uludunaptu. That is uh, made more clear in later verses. But for the time being, Bhagavan is including us. So in this context, he's using Nam to refer to ego. In other contexts, he uses Nam to refer to our real nature. Um, in verse 16, for example, he, there he, when he uses the word Nam, it's not referring to ego, it's referring to our real nature. So we, we need to understand from the context what he's referring to. Like, the, like Nam, which means we, Nan, which means I, or Tan, which means oneself, we need to understand from the context where he's referring to ourselves as we actually are, in other words, uh, our uh, Abhmasarupa, our real nature, and where he's referring to ego. And in many cases, we need not make that distinction, but we, we, we just, so we, we have to understand that is, Bhagavan expresses his teachings in very simple language, but it requires, we, we need to think deeply about it to understand exactly what he is saying. Um, he doesn't always say things in the, that is, in, in works like Uladunapadu, Upadeshundia, Amabide, Arunachastuti Panchakam, he says things in a very compact form. And it's not always immediately obvious what the meaning is or what the underlying implication is. It's it intended to make us stop and think. We shouldn't just read, I mean, it's easy. We can read through the 40 verses of Urunapadu in maybe um, 15 or 20 minutes, but we're very unlikely to, to get much out of it. We have to read each verse very carefully, think deeply about it, and most importantly of all, we need to put it into practice. The more we put it into practice, the more these verses will, re re will reveal their inner meaning and implication to us, because these verses are all very, very deep in meaning. So he here, Bhagavan is, he begins, as I say, this first clause is a since clause. He's giving a reason 
for what he says in the main clause of this sentence. So he, here he's giving a, a logical argument. We have to consider what is the argument. But before I understand that, let's go to move on to the second clause. What he says in the second clause is Nana Bam Shakti Ulla Orumudle Oppal Orutaleye. Nana means many or diverse. Um, uh, is here used as a um, as an adjectival uh, participle or relative participle. So it means uh, which which is or which becomes. In this context, we can take it as which becomes. Um, sati is a Tamil form of the word Shakti, which means uh, power. Ulla, in this context, means uh, which has. Or means one. And mudal means uh, first. Or in this context, it means one fundamental thing, one fundamental. Mudalai, the, the, that is the accusative case ending. So here he's, um, because that is the object of the, the next uh, verb, which is actually a verbal noun. So the, the accusative form of mudal is mudalai. So nana bam shakti ulla or mudalai, which means one fundamental that has a power that becomes many. Um, the next word, opal, is a um, is a, a verbal noun that means accepting. So accepting one fundamental but has a power to be uh, many. And then the last word is orutalaye. We have to think deeply about it, what orutalaye means in this context. Orutalaye, that final ye is an intensifier, so it implies certainly. But what exactly does Bhagavan mean by oru tale here? Oru means one. Tale means head. Um, but he's not talking about one head here. This is a, oru tale is a, is a term that is used in Tamil in various different senses. Um, oh. Oh, here, here it is. Um, I, I just opened a page of lexicon where it's given. But in the Tamil lexicon, which is a, very useful um, Tamil to Tamil to English dictionary that was produced, uh, well, it was published in the 1920s and 1930s by the University of Madras in uh, seven volumes, six main volumes and one supplementary volume. One of the um, scholars who was working on it in the early stages was Murugana. Before he came to Bhagavan, he was one of the Tamil pundits working on this um, this. Uh, voluminous uh, dictionary, which is, uh, it's the best uh, Tamil dictionary there is. And it's a, as I say, it's a Tamil to Tamil to English dictionary. So um, the meanings they give for orotale, the first meaning is one-sidedness. And the second meaning is positiveness or certainty. But to understand how it's used, uh, in practice, it's useful to read other words, uh, other compound words uh, derived from this. The next word it gives is orutale uh, mum, which means one-sided love, unreciprocated love. 
but obviously that's not <laughs> that has no relevance here. But it's just to give a sense of the way in which this. So one of the meanings of orotale is being one-sided, whether one-sided in the sense of being partial, or in the sense of um, in the sense of like in one-sided love. Um, another meaning of uh, another word derived from orotale is orotale uh, tunidal, which means uh, a decision. Uh, accepting one or the other of two contrary opinions or views. This is coming closer to um, the, the, the meaning that is relevant here. That is, there, there are many different views but, uh, about um, many different philosophical, uh, metaphysical views to explain the appearance of this world. Bhagavan is here favoring one particular metaphysical view. So Bhagavan is coming to a decision here. Uh, that's why I translated this as the one best option. There are other options, but of all the top options, this is the best one. And another uh, verb that is derived from orutale is orutale padutal, which means to come to a conclusion. So some people have translated this as uh, this is the this is the one decided conclusion i don't think that i i don't think we should interpret it in quite that way because bhagavan isn't saying this is the only option he's saying this is the best option because for example in the next verse he goes on to talk about different views he talks about there are some people who consider he, he begins what he says in the next verse is each matam, matam means religion or philosophical view, initially accepts three fundamentals. The three fundamentals are God, world, and soul. And then he says, contending only one fundamental stands as three fundamentals, or three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals, is only so long as ego exists. That is, all these contrary views arise only so long as ego exists. In sleep, there are no philosophical or metaphysical or religious arguments. There are no arguments of any sort. Um, uh, so it's only when we rise as ego that all these different viewpoints come into existence. And then one viewpoint argues with another viewpoint. Bhagavan doesn't want us to argue with other viewpoints. What he teaches us in Uladunapadu is not for the sake of arguing with other viewpoints. What he teaches us is the purpose of, uh, of teaching Uladunapadu is to uh, prompt us, to, well, to enable us to understand that knowing anything else without knowing ourselves is futile. First, we need to know ourselves, and to know ourselves, we need to turn within. So, in this, in this first sentence, Bhagavan isn't saying this is the only option. Because if this was the only option, there would be no philosophical disputes. Obviously, there are, there are many different options. There are many different ways of explaining the appearance of the world. But Bhagavan gives, uh, uh, gives uh, his verdict here. This is the one best option. Um, so I'll just see if there are any other meanings of Orutale that may be relevant. Um, now, I think these, these are all the, 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 
the, the, the meaning that are relevant here I just discussed. So here Bhagavan is coming to a conclusion. He is, he is stating a conclusion. This is the best option. He's not saying this is the only option. This is the best option. So we need to understand why he says this is the best option. That is, what is the best option? Accepting that there's one fundamental that has a power but becomes many. Uh, that is, we need to be uh, read this very carefully. Bhagavan isn't saying that the fun, that one fundamental becomes many, because the one fundamental he is referring to is our real nature, Brahman or Atmasarupa, which is immutable. It doesn't never becomes anything. It merely appears as all this. What becomes many is that power, and we need to also consider what is that power. But we'll come to that. So. Why does Bhagavan say that accepting one fundamental is the best option? The reason be the reason the clue is given in the first clause, because we see the world. Though we hear, though it is a plural first person pronoun, in in the experience of each one of us, I alone I am what is seeing the world. So the we who see the world are one. The world is many, but the, the, the objects are many, the subject is one. So since there is in, in the experience of each one of us, there is one, uh, one awareness that is aware of all this. That one awareness is ego, um, but is aware of all these things. That is not the real awareness, but it is as ego, we're aware of all this. So since we are one, and what we see is many, it is, it is reasonable to conclude that all this comes out of the one, that if there's one basic reality, that basic reality appears as ego, the subject, and in the view of ego, there are many objects. So those, though the objects are many, they appear in the view of one ego, and therefore it is reasonable to to suppose that the, the underlying reality is one, not many. That is the reason why Bhagavan said this is the one best option. And what does he say about this one fundamental? Um, but what he refers to here as or muddle, the one fundamental, is he's not specifying it, but here it implies a Brahman or, or a real nature, what actually exists. What he referred to in the first uh, ma uh, Mangalam verse as um, Ulladu, what, what actually exists, or uh, Ullaporal, the existing substance. That is the one mudal he's referring to here. And in the second Mangalam verse, he refers to that one mudal as, um, as uh, Maheshwar, the great lord. It, 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 because it, it, uh, what, we, what we see as God is nothing but that one fundamental. Because as he says, and that one fundamental is our own real nature, as he says in the next sentence, um, and we and God are one, as he says in Uludunaptu, for example, in verses 24 and 25 of Uludunaptu. In 24, he says, Irakum ekeal isa jivagal oru yaba. By existing nature, God and soul are one substance, one poral. Uh, upadi unave veru. Only their 
Only awareness of adjuncts is different. Who is aware of adjuncts? Only ego. So ego, as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person called so-and-so. And since we have limited ourselves, God seems to be something other than ourselves. So we, we also ascribe certain uh, attributes to God. So those are the attributes of God, or, or those are the adjuncts of God. But in God's view, there are no adjuncts at all. There is only the one substance that we actually are. So we can take Oru or, 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 or Mudal here. It refers to Brahman or our real nature or God as our real nature. Not God as a separate being, but God as, we, as he actually is, as the fun, one fundamental reality. And he says here, but this one, this one fundamental, it has a power which becomes many. What is the power he is referring to here? This, the power is what is generally called Maya. But Bhagavan has clarified that Maya is nothing but our own mind. In other words, Maya, ego is itself Maya. He says this explicitly, for example, in the opening paragraph of Vichara Sangraham, in um, Vichara Sangraham section, uh, in the first section, in the first subsection of the first section of Vichara Sangraham, there's one sentence here. He begins the sentence by saying, um, Ipadi, in this way, Dehate Kuritu. That means referring to the body. Uh, that, that, well, well, the main subject of this sentence is nan indru erum bodame. That, uh, an awareness that rises as I. And it rises as I, re, uh, pointing to the body or referring to the body. In other words, it's, it, it's aware of itself as I am this body. And then he says it's avarantaramai. Avarantaramai means... It's intermediate because ego, as he says in verse 24 of Ulyanapdu, ego is what rises. Ego is neither the body, which is jada, and therefore not aware of itself as I, nor is it satchit because satchit doesn't rise. It is something, it is a spurious I, but rises in between. Um, so here he refers to it as avarantaramai, it's intermediate. In other words, it appears as a link between real awareness and the body, being distinct from both, but partaking of the neat nature of each of them. And then he, um, he says, uh, so he says, this, this awareness that rises as I, um, being in between or being intermediate and referring to the body. In other words, the awareness that rises as I am this body is the implication. Uh, this is this alone is what is various is variously called as tat bodham. Tat bodham is a technical term. It literally means awareness, that awareness or awareness of that. But it, it's a term that is used in this context. It, it's used in the sense of egotism, um, because ego is awareness of ourselves as I am this or I am that. So that's why it's uh, egotism is referred to as tapbodham. It is ahankaram, that's ego, avidya, ignorance, maya, um, 
Malam means impurity and jiva. So here Bhagavan explicitly says that maya is nothing but ego. And in Guru Vachika Kovai, we can see many verses in which Bhagavan uses the term manamaya, which means mind maya, because maya is, not, maya is nothing but the mind. So that is the power that he's referring to here. Um, as he says in the, this is the same power that he refers to in the first sentence of the fourth paragraph of uh, Nana. What he says in the fourth paragraph, in the first sentence of his paragraph is, Manam Embadu Apma Sarupa Tilulla or Adiseya Shakti. What is called mind is a, a, an extraordinary or, or wonderful uh, power that exists in Atmasarupa. Atmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. And then in the next sentence, he goes on to say, Adu Sakala Ninebu Galayum Totruvikindradu. That it, it, it is what it causes all thoughts to appear. In other words, it projects all thoughts. And as he says a little in a few sentences later, um, excluding Ninebugalay Tabitu, Jagam Endru, or Porul, Anyamai Ilde. Excluding thought, there is no separate, there's no separate thing as the mind. Sorry, there's no separate thing as world. In other words, the world is nothing but thoughts. And what causes all thoughts to appear? It is this, it is mind, which is this uh, Adiseya Shakti. So the implication here is that the power of Maya that makes all this appear is nothing but the mind. And he expresses the same idea in verse 6 of um, Arunacha Ashtakam. What he says in that verse is, in the first sentence he says, Undoru porul arivoli ulameini. Uh, undu means there is. Orupolol, one substance. They, later on he says ulamei. A we is an intensifier, which is applying to all of these. So we can, when we uh, translate this, we can say there is only one substance, one porol, one vastu. What is that one? Porul, ni, you, he's referring to Aranachala, uh, ulame, the, the heart, uh, arivoli, the light of awareness. So there is only one substance, you, the heart, the light of awareness. So uh, here he's saying, but, but Aranachala is the, is the one, one existing substance, the one real substance, the one reality. And it is the heart, and it is the light of awareness. It is that which is shining in our heart as I am. That is, it's shining in the heart as the heart as I am. Um, and then in the next sentence, he says, Ulladu unil, uh, Ulladu unil alladu uh, ila um, adiseya shakti. That means in you exists an extraordinary power, which is not other than you. Um, unil means um, uh, in you. Uladu exists. Uh, uh, Adiseya Shakti, 
the same term he uses in the in the fourth in the first sentence of the fourth paragraph of uh, Nana, uh, uh, an extraordinary power. In you exists an extraordinary power. Allah do Allah, which means which is not other, implying what not other than you. So this this power, this the power he's referring to here is the mind, the ego. So ego is something that exists in Atmasarupa. In other words, it cannot exist independent of Atmasarupa. Of course, Atmasarupa is, is unaffected by the appearance of ego, but ego cannot exist anywhere but in Atmasarupa because Atmasarupa alone is what actually exists. So if ego appears to exist, it can appear to exist only in Atmasarupa. And ego cannot be anything other than Atmasarupa. Just like the, the, the snake appears in a rope, and is nothing other than a rope. What actually is there is only a rope. There's no snake at all. Likewise, there's no ego at all, but ego seems to exist just like the snake seems to exist. Where does it seem to exist? Just like the snake seems to exist in the rope uh, or, or superimposed on the rope, ego seems to exist superimposed on or in this um, this this. Uh, this one reality, the one, the one substance that actually exists, namely Aranakla, the heart, the light of awareness. And then he goes on in the next sentence to describe how from this one power, um, the, the, the world is projected. That is what he's, uh, um, it's a very, very, um, but the, the, the meaning of the next sentence is very deep, and we have to slightly expand it to make it intelligible. Um, so, slightly expanded that that with a few words added in um, in in brackets because it that's necessary to make the meaning uh, to to make it intelligible. But the implication of the next sentence is appearing from that, that means from that what that extraordinary power, along with awareness, um, that if the mind never appears, ego never appears without being endowed with awareness, because ego is chichalagranti. So the awareness there is the chit element of ego. Um, a series of uh, shadowy thoughts spinning in the world of a destiny, prarabdha, are seen on the mirror that is the mind light as a shadowy world picture, both inside and outside, via sense organs such as the eye, um, like a shadow picture that stands out or is projected by a lens. Jaga vichitram, the, the world picture, ullum, uh, within, kan mudal, uh, Pori Bari Puritum, outside, that, that it, it appears inside and outside. The inside world, as I say, the world of our thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, and so on. The external world is the world that we, uh, we infer exists outside there because, because we receive, because we have perceptually or sensory impressions. But we, those sensory impressions seem to be caused by an external world. So, in effect, there's a, uh, for all, for all appear, for, uh, there appear to be two worlds of an external world and an internal world. 
That's why that what he's referring to here. But both the external world and the internal world, they consist of nothing but thoughts, but uh, but appear from this from this one power. So this this is what he's referring to in this first verse of Uludnapti when he says, "One power which becomes many." That is, it is the mind when we when we see a dream. What are we seeing? We are seeing ourselves as that dream world. Likewise, the, the, the world we are now perceiving, it's our own mind, but we are seeing as all this. So the, all this, all the, the, the objects that constitute the world are nothing but thoughts, nothing but mental impressions. And um, so they are not, in substance, they are nothing but mind. So mind is that power that appears as all these many things. And this power exists, or, or, or this power exists in and not other than the one fundamental. So this is what Bhagavan, so what Bhagavan implies here is that though we see the world of many objects, all these uh, the underlying reality, the one fundamental that appears as all these, it, it, the, the, what appears as all these is one fundamental. And what is that one fundamental? He then goes on to say in the next sentence. Um, it, what he says in the next sentence is, Nama Uru Chitramam, the picture of names and forms. All all objects, all phenomena are forms of one kind or another. And we, but, but generally in, um, in Vedanta philosophy, we don't just talk about forms. Often we talk about not just um, uh, rupam, we talk about nama rupam, names and forms. And um, people often ask, why do names come before forms? Surely you must have a form before you uh, you can have a name for it, but there is, um, I I believe the reason is that is this is my own inference. The reason names come first is what is what looms large in our mind is not what we are seeing, but what we are seeing it as. For example, if we see a snake, if we see a rope. But see it as a snake. The, the snake is a that snake is a is an identity. That is, our mind sees some form lying on the ground, and we whatever we see, we interpret it in some way. We identify it in some way. So we see something lying on the ground. We identify it. Oh, that is a snake. So the snake is the name. The actual form. Uh, is less important than the name because wh why name comes first because what it actually is is only a rope which is a harmless thing but because we wrongly identify it we give it the, the name a snake we identify it as a snake so what it seems to us to be is not a rope but only a snake because it seems to be a snake it causes fear and because we're afraid of it we don't want to go too close but if Bhagavan is with us, he will say, no, it is not, a, it is not a, a snake, it is a rope. Look at it very carefully and see what it actually is. If we have faith in Bhagavan, we will trust his words 
but it is not a, it's not a snake and therefore not dangerous. So we'll pluck up the courage and we'll go and look at it closely. If we look at it closely, what do we see? Oh, it was never a snake. It's just a rope. Likewise, this um, what what we are now experiencing as ego, as this false awareness. I am, I am such and such a person. I am Michael, or I am Kumar, or I, I am whoever. That that ego is nothing other than I am. If we look at ego carefully enough. What we see is the underlying pure awareness I am. That is the old model that he's referring to here. So this, I believe, is why in, in Indian philosophy generally, uh, well, particularly in Vedanta philosophy, we talk about names and forms. Rather than forms and names, we never, you never hear uh, rupam namam. It's always nama rupam. Um, uh, so here, nama is a Sanskrit word. Uru is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word rupa, because I think in Vedic Sanskrit, in very ancient Sanskrit, rupam was urupam, like, just like lokam was ulokam. So in Tamil, the word is ulahum, in the first clause of this sentence, nam ulahum. Ulahum is a Tamil form of the, of the ancient form of the word loka, which was uloka. Um, and loka, by the way, Bhagavan often used to point out, loka is connected with lo lochana, which is, uh, lochana is I. So loka, the etymology of loka is what is seen. In other words, the world doesn't actually exist. It is merely seen. It is a mere appearance. So it, it's implied there in the etymology of the name. Um, so, Nama Uru means the names and forms. Chitaram means picture. So it's significant that Bhagavan uses the word picture here because all this world is nothing but a picture. It's nothing but a, a mental impression. Has a, what, what, we, what we, 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 we have a mental impression of, of sights and sounds and, and tactile sensations and smells and touches our mind interprets all these and gives it a name. That is what we, what is actually um, coming into the mind is a series of, of sensory impressions. If we view it from a scientific point of view, um, of course, this isn't entirely valid from Bhagavan's the standpoint of Bhagavan's teaching, but it illustrates the point well. According to science, there's a world out there. And that world makes an impression on our five senses. The light from the world comes and falls on the retina. And the, the, the retina in, uh, receives the light and uh, uh, um, the nerves in the retina translate those impressions, those uh, impressions into, into uh, neural um, messages, that is electrochemical uh, impulses are sent from the nerve back into the from from the retina back along the optic nerve into the brain. Likewise, with with uh, sound, certain sounds hit our eardrum, and uh, those sounds are then uh, converted into neural impulses. And likewise, with uh, touch and taste and smell, these are all impressions coming from, seemingly coming from outside. Are, are, are 
impact on our senses, and the senses um, send messages to our brain. In, they, what, the, what the senses are sending to the brain is only electrochemical impulses. The, and then somehow the brain processes that, but somehow we interpret all those messages as a coherent world picture. The picture of the world is, 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 is the mind's interpretation of the impressions it gets through the senses. So it's all an impression. That is what, we, what is actually coming into the brain is only nervous impulses, your electrochemical impulses. That is the form. But it's a mind that gives it the name. Ah, this is a world, and this world exists out there. Um, of course, we need not go into so much detail from the point of view of Bhagavan's teaching, because Bhagavan says very simply, this is all a dream. So actually, there's no world out there that is impacting on our senses. But when we investigate the world, it seems to be, this, this is, science tells us what the knowledge we get from science is knowledge about the appearance. Science doesn't tell us what actually exists. Science tells us what seems to exist. So scientists are, um, why? Because scientists are making research on the appearance. All this world is nothing but a, an appearance. It's nothing but a, a picture of names and forms. The scientists make research on that. So they tell us a lot about how this appearance works, but not what this appearance actually is. That is why philosophy, metaphysics is necessary. It, it seems to us, and science seems to confirm, that there is a world out there. But actually, there is no evidence that anything exists independent of our view of it. Science cannot prove that any world exists. All science can tell us is the world seems to exist, and it seems to be working in such and such a way. But... Does, any, does anything exist independent of our perception of it? That is what the question asked by, 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 by philosophy, by metaphysics. The answer given by Bhagavan is there is absolutely no evidence that there's anything external to ourselves. Why? Because in dream, we experience a world exactly like this, a world made up of a five time, types of sense impression. And so long as we're dreaming, we assume that there's a world out there and that external world is causing all this. When we wake up, we immediately recognize, oh, it was all just a dream and therefore all in my own mind. Since we have concluded now that the dream world existed in our mind, what evidence do we have that this world is any different? Is there anything that we're experiencing now that we couldn't experience in a dream? Obviously not. So there's absolutely no evidence that there's any external world. So what this world is, is just a picture of names and forms. In other words, it, it's a mere appearance. It's a mere mental projection, just like a, a dream. is merely It's a mere picture in our mind. It doesn't actually, no world actually exists. The world we see in a dream, all the, the whatever we may see, all the, uh, joys and sorrows in dream, all the, the causes of the joys and sorrows. The, in dream, we may experience pandemics and wars and famines and um, material prosperity and all sorts of things we may experience in a dream. 
They're all just a picture in our own mind. Likewise, this world with all its wars and its famines and its pandemics and all its um, injustices and everything, it's all just a picture in our own mind. Namo uru chitaramam. So it's a very, very beautiful description of the world. Nothing but a picture of names and forms. To whom did this picture appear? It appears to a seer, papanam. Papanam means the seer, the one who sees. Um, who is the one who sees? It is ego. And though papanam literally means the seer, it, 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 often we, we, we talk of perception as sight. That is, there are five types of sensory uh, perception, but the, the principal uh, sensory perception is sight. So we talk about seeing, but seeing here means, um, means uh, like he said in the first sentence, because we see the world, their seeing is, is used metaphorically to mean because we perceive the world. So here, the seer means the one who perceives, in other words, ego, the subject. So the nama uru chitiramum is all the objects. Papanum is the subject, the perceiver. What is perceived is the picture of names and forms. The one who is perceiving it is the is ego, the, the subject or perceiver. And then he says, se padomum. Um, padom in this context means screen. When we see us, uh, uh, when we go to a cinema and watch a, a, a film on the cinema, all the pictures we are seeing, we may go and watch a film about war or about politics or about a love story or whatever we see, all the pictures are appearing just on a screen. And in Bhagavan's days, they were just the cinema screens. Nowadays, we've got television screens, we've got our mobile the screens on our mobile phone. We have so many different types of screen. Those, that's, he, he describes that as ser padamon. Ser padamon means, uh, ser means uh, joining so it's it's the it's the cohesive i've translated a cohesive screen it's the screen that holds it all together supposing you you have a cinema projector and you project into the into the darkness into empty space no picture is going to appear you need to have a screen on which a picture appears that that because if if you're projecting just out into the empty supposing you go out into the night and set up a um uh, a cinema projector and project onto nothing, just into an empty space, you project a picture, the picture isn't held together. There needs to be something to hold it together. So that which holds it together, that uh, is the, the cohesive screen. Of course, the screen that holds it all together is, is the mind itself. So the, the mind is both the, the seer and the screen on which it's seen. It is also the our olium, the pervading light. Um, what Bhagavan means here by pervading light, there's a useful passage in, um, I mean, it, if we think about it deeply, it should be obvious to us, but uh, Bhagavan gives a, um, a, a, a TPR in uh, Day by Day, on the second page of Day by Day, that is, Devaraj Mudli began recording on the 16th of March, 1945, and the, um, 
but the second day he was recording was 17th of March. On the, the entry on the 17th of March, uh, TPR, that's TP Ramachandraya, asked Bhagavan about the meaning of our Oli in the stanza of Uludunapadu. Uh, and Bhagavan replies, unfortunately, in day by day, they give these Tamil words without any transliteration. So for, it's easy for it to be to read if we know Tamil, but for people who don't know Tamil, it's a bit difficult to know what, what is being talked about here. But this is our, the term he's asking about, our Oli, is this term in this first verse of Uludunapadu. And Bhagavan says, our Oli means Nirenda Oli. Nirenda means what is pervading. So our Oli means pervading light. And then he goes on to say, it refers to that light of mind in which we see all the world, both the known and the unknown world. That is that, that is quite a significant thing. Bhagavan said, both the known and the unknown of both the known and the unknown of the world. That is, the mind tells us the, the mind knows so many things, but the mind also knows that it doesn't know so many things. We 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 know. We, we know a lot about the world, but the more we know about the world, we more we know we, the more we know that we don't know. So the, the, the light of a mind lights up not only what is known, but what is unknown. This, this, is, this, is, um, this is what Bhagavan talks about later in, um, in verses 10, 11, and so on of uh, Uludunapdu, where he talks about aribu ariyameyam, knowledge and ignorance. So long as we know any object, we, we, we know so, whatever objects we know, previously we didn't know them. So previously we were ignorant of them. And when one day we're going to forget them. Every day when we fall asleep, we forget everything that we know. When death comes, we're going to forget everything. We're going to permanently forget all that we knew in this lifetime. So knowledge and ignorance, so long as we, knowledge and ignorance of anything other than ourselves, they always go hand in hand. And the more we know something, the more we come to know what we don't know. Science is always investigating and gathering more and more knowledge. But the more scientists know, the more they realize that there's so much that they don't know. <clears throat> and another thing is, because nothing exists, independent of our perception of it, our ignorance of something comes into existence only when we come to know it. For example, before we went to school, we, we didn't know much about history. When we go to school, we may learn about history. We may learn, for example, about the um, American War of Independence or the independence struggle in India or about the First World War or Second World War. When we learn about those things, we come to know them. Only when we come to know them do we know that we were previously ignorant of them. Because if we, if we don't, we, we cannot know our ignorance without knowing that we're ignorant of it. So that's why Bhagavan says, I think in verse 10, not, without ignorance, there's no knowledge. And without knowledge, there's no ignorance. The knowledge and ignorance he's talking about there is knowledge and ignorance of other things. So that, that Bhagavan is hinting at here when he says, it refers to that light of manas, mind, 
in which we see all the world, both the known and the unknown world. So all that we know, and all that we know that we don't know, it's all illumined by the mind light, by this R Oli. And then Bhagavan goes on to say, there is first the white light, so to call it, of the self. That is our real nature, the pure light, which transcends both light and darkness. In it, no object can be seen. That is, the white light is referring to here, the light of pure awareness. But our real nature is pure awareness. No object can be seen in it. There is neither seer nor seen. Then there is total darkness or avidya, in which also no objects are seen. So in total darkness, you cannot see anything. In the full light, you can't see anything because everything is swallowed by the light. Um, but from the self proceeds a reflected light, the light of pure manas, the light of a pure mind. And this is what is called chitabhasa. Uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the reflected light or the seeming, uh, the, the reflected awareness or seeming awareness. And it is this light that gives room for the existence of all the film of the world, which is seen neither in total darkness nor in, uh, neither in total light nor in total darkness. That is, Bhagavan often used to use the, the, the cinema as, a, as a, to illustrate this. He said, in a cinema, if you've got all the lights turned on, or if you remove the roof of the cinema, in, in, in old days in South India, uh, um, uh, uh, there were private companies who, who were um, uh, cinema, they, they, they would go from place to place, they would set up a tent, and in that tent, they would, show, they would show pictures. So they, they'd go from village to village. and they, So villagers could see these pictures. This is in the days before, um, before uh, regular cinemas were built, in the very old days when they still had uh, um, the, the silent movies and so on. They would set up the, the pictures in a tent. So Bhagavan said, without the tent, you can't see. If in the broad daylight, they project a picture on the screen, you won't be able to see anything. You, so you need the partial darkness of the tent. If, you, if the wind comes and blows away the tent, the picture will be swallowed by the light. Likewise, when ego is annihilated and a full light of pure awareness shines forth, the whole world is swallowed. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 27 of Akshram, Sakalam and Virangam, Kadiroli Yinamana, uh, um, the uh, light of, uh, of uh, pure awareness, sakalam and virankum, kadi roli ina, uh, ina means uh, mind. Uh, sorry, sorry, ina means sun. Uh, so, sun of, of, uh, of bright light uh, uh, that uh, swallows, um, that swallows everything. Uh, Mana jala jam alati aranachala. Make my mind lotus blossom. Um, here, the word he uses kadir. It's um, it, it's a it's a noun from a verb which means to shine, glow, or manifest. Um, so since it acts as an adjective for oli for bright, it, it, I I've taken it here to mean bright. 
um, it can also mean uh, rays. So we can also take this sun of bright rays, but swallow everything. So we can take it either as bright light or bright rays, but it amounts to the same. So our, why does he say it swallows everything? Because in the, just like in the, if the tent, if the roof of the tent is blown away, the picture that is the cinema picture that is being shown on the screen will be swallowed by the bright sunlight that comes flooding in. And he says the same in um, in the first verse of Arnacha Pancharatnam. Um, by your bright rays, you swallow everything, he says to Arunachala. So um, Arunachala, that light of pure awareness, but will swallow everything. So in the pure light, um, nothing appears. Likewise, in total darkness, nothing appears. You need to have, because without the light in the center, the limited light, in the cinema projector, no picture would be projected on the screen. If you can have the, the cinema projector can be running, but if there's no light in it, no picture is going to appear on the screen. So there needs to be a limited light. That limited light is the mind light. But Bhagavan describes it as our Oliver, pervading light, because the whole of this world is pervaded by the light of the mind. That is what it what is it that illumines the mind, the world. Uh, it's only the mind. This is what he says in verse um, in verse seven of Uludunapdu, for example. He says um, here he talks about he uses the word aribu. Aribu means awareness, but he talks about the awareness that that appears and disappears, rises and subsides. So, what is the awareness that arises and subsides? It's only ego. So. Um, or mind. So he says, um, though, um, though the world and awareness rise and subside simultaneously, as I say, awareness here means ego, uh, the world shines by awareness. What does he mean? It is, the, it is ego or mind that illumines the world, but it makes the world known. The world couldn't be known without the mind there to know it. So mind is that reflected light of the mind is what makes this world seem to exist. Um, that, that's what he was saying earlier, but from the self uh, proceeds a reflected light, the light of pure manas. And it is this light which gives room for the existence of all the film of the world, which is seen neither in total light nor in total darkness, but only in the subdued or reflected light. It is this light that is referred to in the, in the stanza. So uh, coming back to the verse, Bhagavan says, um, the, the picture of names and forms, the seer, the, uh, the cohesive screen, and the pervading light. So all of these actually, the, the seer is the mind or ego. The screen on which it is seen is mind or ego. The light that illumines it is mind or ego. And the picture that is seen is also mind, because it, that's why Bhagavan says in, um, in verse 26 of Uludunapdu, undahum. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. 
That is, ego sees all this, this vast universe and all these so many thoughts and perceptions and memories and emotions and everything going on inside it. What are all these things? Both the external world and the internal world are nothing but the mind itself. Ego is seeing itself as all this. The dreamer is seeing itself as the whole entire dream world. So, but Bhagavan, the, the conclusion Bhagavan comes here, all of these, Ateneum Tanam Avan, that literally means all these are he who is oneself. Who is this he? Where did he come in? We've not mentioned any he. He is here, Avan is referring to the one fundamental. Why does he refer to the one fundamental as he rather than it? Because that one fundamental is what we generally call God. So, and we generally refer to God as he. Of course, God also has female forms, but there's, it is a, a convention to refer to God as he. But of course, God is actually beyond male and female. That's why one of the forms of Shiva is Adhanarishwara. Uh, um, uh, Shiva and Shakti merge together as one form. It's usually in iconography, it's usually depicted as a person with a half male form, a half female form. So half is Shiva, half is Shakti. That is for um, that is for iconography that is appropriate. But the meaning is that Shiva and Shakti are one and the same. And so God is beyond this all gender distinction. God is neither he nor she, nor is God even it. God is I. He is I. Soham. Shivaham. Aham Brahmasmi. God is that which is shining in our heart as I. But here, according to the convention, he refers to God as he refers to that one fundamental Brahman or God as he. But who is that he? Tanamavan. That he who is oneself, that is that one fundamental, is nothing other than ourself. Because nothing can be other than that one fundamental. That one fundamental is what alone actually exists. So that is what appears, that one fundamental is what we actually are. And that is what appears as all this, as the picture of names and forms, as the one who sees it. In other words, there's all objects and the subject and the screen on which it's seen and the light by which it's seen. So all these are he. So here Bhagavan is giving a, um, he is, this is the heart of Advaita. Because according to Advaita, ekam eva advaitiam, there is one only without a second. That one only without a second is what is called Brahman. And who is that Brahman? Tatvamasi, you are that. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. So we ourselves are the one thing that actually exists. Ekameva means one only. Advitya means without a second. So there's nothing other than ourselves. We alone are what actually exists. As he says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Uludu Atmasarupam Andre. What actually exists is only Atmasarupa. So we alone are what actually exists. Um, so it is we ourselves who are being. So, but uh, okay, what I was going to say, 
since we alone know what actually exists, and that is the, the, the primary contention of Advaita, how to explain, if I alone exist, then how, do I, how am I seeing all this? There seem to be so many things existing. How can you say I alone exist? Of course, the sun exists, the moon exists, the, the, so many galaxies exist, the, the table exists, the chair exists, the PC exists, other people exist. So how can you say I alone exist? There's one only without a second. That it, it, if, we, if we don't think about it uh, deeply, Advaita seems something a, a ridiculous claim. But if we think about it deeply, one thing actually exists, everything else is a mere appearance. It is divata, it's a, just an illusory appearance. So when something appears, there must be some underlying basis. You, if nothing existed, we couldn't see anything. Since we see something, well, we see many things, there must be something underlying this, this appearance of manyness. That's what he's saying. Because we see the world, accepting one fundamental that has a power that becomes many is certainly the one best option. We have to accept at least one thing exists. You, nobody can say nothing exists because you must exist in order to say nothing exists. So, even if everything else is a false appearance, at least we must exist because we are here to say all this, all this seems to exist. To whom does it all seem to exist? To me. So we are the one fundamental. So all this is, is nothing but ourself. But since what are we one or many? Obviously, we are one. As he says later, I think it's in verse 33, he says it. Yes, verse 33, what he says is, um, saying, I do not know myself or I have known myself is ground for ridicule. Why? To make, ourself, to make oneself known, uh, to make oneself an object, are there two selves? That is, in order to know ourselves, that implies ourself is an object. But are there two selves? No. So he concludes that verse by saying, um, Andrei, Aneva anubuti unmeal, because being one is the truth, the experience of everyone. That is, we all experience ourselves as I am one. None of us experience ourselves as I'm two different people, I'm three different people. Though we though we take identify ourselves with this body which has so many parts, and the life of a animating that body which has so many different functions, and the mind which is, consists of so many thoughts and feelings and perceptions and emotions and so on, memories and so on, we, we seem to be a bundle of many things, but we are a basic experience of ourselves as I am one. So we, since we all experience ourselves as one, the multipli multiplicity, whatever we see as many, is objects perceived by us. The subject we perceive as I am one. I am seeing many things, but I am one. So all these many things are just an appearance. What is real is the one. Is the, does that mean the subject is real? No, even the subject is not real because the subject is ego, which itself appears and disappears. What underlies the subject, the reality underlying the subject is what is real. As ego, ego is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. What is real is only I am.
So that I am, that fundamental awareness I am, that is Satchit. That is what he refers to here as he who is oneself. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. I hope I covered everything. I, I think I've covered it fairly thoroughly. There's probably more that can be said about this because there's always more that can be said about Bhagavan's verses because they're so deep in meaning. But I think um, that's a fairly good overview of uh, of at least some of the depth and subtlety of meaning and implication in this verse. Thank you, Michael. This first question is from Venkat. Um, Pranam, Michael, when I practice Atma Vichara with eyes closed, I'm fully alert. Yet I always have this doubt. Am I doing it right? Or am I inadvertently setting up myself on the way to Manolaya? Can you please provide some practical clues to make sure that I'm not falling in the trap of Manolaya? Manolaya results when we withdraw our attention from everything else. For example, the, the most common form of Manolaya, the Manolaya that we're all familiar with is sleep. What happens when we fall asleep? We are too tired to continue um, projecting this world and projecting thoughts. So we withdraw our attention from everything else and consequently we subside in Manolaya. Um, Manolaya can also be brought about in other, by other means. For example, uh, anesthetic drugs bring about Manolaya. When we, if we go for some major surgery, we may be given anesthesia but puts us to sleep, so to, as they say. That means we are put into Manolaya, so we're not aware of what is happening to the body. Um, Manolaya can also result from an accident. If you're involved in a car accident, you get a head injury, you may be in coma for several months or something. That is Manolaya. Death is Manolaya, temporary. Well, old Manolaya is temporary. And um, the yogis bring about manalaya artificially by means of pranayama and other practices. The, they, the manalaya they bring about is what they call nivikalpa samadhi. But Bhagavan has said, uh, the kevala nivikalpa samadhi achieved by yoga practices is just another form of manalaya. It's, not, it's, it's nothing, there's nothing, it's not of any spiritual value. So, when, if we understand that manolaya is brought about by withdrawing our attention from other things, how can we avoid manolaya? Obviously, we want to withdraw our attention from everything else, but if we merely withdraw our attention from other things, it results in manolaya. So how do we avoid going into manolaya? By holding on to self-attentiveness. That is, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we thereby withdraw our attention from other things. But so long as we're holding on to self-attentiveness, we won't subside in Manolaya. So the, the key to going beyond Manolaya and bringing about Manonasa is self-attentiveness. This is the only way. So uh, many people think that the aim is to remove, to, to, to have a quiet mind, not to think anything. That is yoga. The yoga begins with the, 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 the first um, 
what yeah, yeah, potentially says in the second Yoga Sutra, in the first Yoga Sutra, he doesn't say anything except this is, this is uh, he, he gives an introduction. Um, but then in the second Yoga Sutra, he says, um, um, uh, Yoga's Chitta Vritti Nirodha. Yoga is restraining or uh, curbing or stopping the chitta vrittis, the activity of the mind. That is not our aim. Our aim is not to bring about uh, stillness of mind. Our aim is to know ourselves. As a result of knowing ourselves, the mind will be there by be still. In fact, the mind will be destroyed, not merely still, it'll be completely eradicated. So the aim in Atmavichara. We need not be concerned about thoughts. As Bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph of Nana, however many thoughts arise, so what? Big deal. It doesn't matter. Whenever any thought appears, to who we need to investigate to whom does it appear? In other words, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So how do we, in Atmavichara, we are withdrawing our attention from other things, but only by attending to ourself. That is, withdrawing our attention from other things is a byproduct of attending to ourself. It is not our central aim. Our aim is to know ourself. So in, I, earlier I referred to the sixth paragraph of, sorry, the sixth verse of Arunachashtakam, where Bhagavan said there's one thing. And in that one, there's one thing, you, the, the heart, the light of awareness, and in that, there's one power which is not other than you. He concludes that verse by saying, um, uh, Aral Kundre, Nindrida Sendrida Ninebida Vindre, Hill of Grace. Let them cease or let them go on. He's referring to the, the, the world pictures. Let them cease or let them go on. They do not exist apart from you. So what does Bhagavan imply by this? What he implies is we need to be completely unconcerned about the appearance of the world. We need to be unconcerned about the appearance of thought. Let them appear or not appear. Just don't look at them. Look at yourself. If we are attending to ourselves, um, we, we will not be concerned about anything. That's why in the next verse, he begins by saying, um, Indraham, uh, Indraham enunene venipira vondrum, Indru. That is, if, if the, this, the first thought I does not exist, nothing else will exist. Until then, we need to investigate to whom does, to whom is everything appearing, to me, who am I, and thereby we go back within. So we shouldn't be concerned about the appearance or disappearance of thoughts. We shouldn't pay any attention to thoughts at all. We should attend only to ourselves. So long as we are attending to ourselves, we are on the right track. That's all that is required. People would say, how do I know I'm attending to myself? We all know ourselves very clearly. Every one of us know I am. Do, you not, do we not know our own existence? Yes. Obviously, our existence, ourself, is not an object. So it's not like attending to an object. But we are, we are always aware I am. But generally, because of our interest in other things, 
we're not attending to I am, we're attending to other things because the world is so interesting. Why should I attend to this boring old I am? So we, we're interested in it because of our interest in other things, we're attending to other things. To follow Bhagavan's path, we need to be passionately interested in knowing one thing and one thing alone. Who am I? So our whole attention should be focused on this fundamental awareness I am. This fundamental awareness I am is not an object, but it is the, it is the background on which all these objects appear. So we are all aware I am. Just hold on to that awareness I am. Attend to that awareness I am. It is subtle, but the more we do it, the clearer it becomes. So we cannot go wrong in this path so long as we are attending only to ourselves. If we attend to anything other than ourselves, then we've gone wrong. Or if we merely withdraw our attention from other things without attending to ourselves, we've gone wrong. This is, we, there are two, two problems we, conf we confront when we're trying to attend to ourselves. The two problems are sleep and thought. Sleep means manolaya. If we, if we, okay, the first problem is thought. The first problem we all come across is thoughts. Our mind keeps on getting distracted by other thoughts. Why? Because we're interested in other things. So we need to avoid being carried away by thoughts. We need to hold on to ourselves. We also need to avoid slipping into manolaya, into sleep. So we need to hold on to ourselves. Holding on to ourselves is the only way to maintain, remain balanced between thought and layer. To, to remain balanced in the state between thoughts and layer, we need to hold on to I am. So holding on to I am, being steadily self-attentive, this is the true samadhi. This is jnana samadhi. This is sahaja samadhi. Bhagavan, in his introduction to, um, though generally Bhagavan talked, used the term Sahaja Samadhi to refer to our real state, in other words, uh, our own real nature, Sahaja Samadhi. He also, in, the, in the, his introduction to his translation of uh, Drikdrisya Viveka, he talks about Sahaja Samadhi Parakatal. Why he does so? Because in Drikdrisya Viveka, there's talk about so many different types of Samadhi. But in Bhagavan's introduction, he asks us to practice only one type of Samadhi. That is Sahaja Samadhi. And he does, what is Sahaja Samadhi? He describes it as, he describes it very nicely. I'll just get it. Taneye, oneself alone. Bahianta Drishti Bedamindri. Without the, the Di distinction in seeing outside or inside. So we need to go beyond the, the distinction between inside and outside. Epodum nadam, always attending to oneself without the distinction of inside and outside. Sahaja samadhi parakata. So by the practice of sahaja samadhi, which is always attending to oneself alone, without the distinction between inside and outside. Why does he say without the distinction between inside and outside. So long as we're looking outwards, so long as we're attending to anything else, we are told to look within. But when we look deep within, we go beyond the distinction between inside and outside. So long as we are holding on to self-attentiveness, we need not be concerned about inside and outside. All these differences will dissolve by the strength of self-attentiveness. 
So, so long as we're looking outward, we are told to look back within. Once we are looking within and holding on to I, we go beyond the distinction of inside and outside. That means even in the midst of other activities, whatever the body, speech, and mind may seem to be doing outwardly, inwardly we can be holding on to this Sahaja Samadhi Parakam, this practice of Sahaja Samadhi, which is holding on to self-attentiveness. So this is the real... So why is it called Samadhi? Samadhi, one of the... One of the it may not be the original etymology of samadhi, but one of the explanations of samadhi, sama means what is balanced or equal. D means the mind or intellect. So the state in which the mind is in a state of equilibrium, but balancing between thought on the one hand and sleep on the other hand, remaining balanced between the two, neither being carried away by thought nor being carried away by layer, remaining in between, how? By holding on to self-attentiveness. So self-attentiveness is the key. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. That's all we need to be concerned about is being self-attentive. Let everything else come and go. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. What matters, the only thing that matters is being self-attentive, holding on to self-attentiveness. Why is that? Because only one thing is real. That is ourself. I am. That fundamental awareness, I am, alone is real. So what should we hold on to? Only that. If we hold on to that, we will neither be carried away by thoughts, nor will we be carried away, um, nor will we subside into layer. And if we hold on to that firmly enough and go deep enough within, we then achieve manonasa. Manonasa is the permanent dissolution of the mind. And then from that, there's no coming back. That's what Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Upadesha Undia. Ileyamum nasamum irendam odukum. That is, dissolution is two, of two kinds, it means. Layer and nasa. What is lying down in layer, what is subsided in layer, will rise again. Uh, if its form dies in nasa, it will not rise. So the difference between layer and nasa, both are dissolution of the mind, but layer is only a temporary dissolution. Nasa is permanent dissolution. Our aim is nasa. And how can nasa be attained? Only by holding on to self-attentiveness. By withdrawing our attention from other things, we'll subside in layer unless we hold on to self-attentiveness. So self, what Bhagavan has given us is such a precious clue. This is the, this is the, the soul means to mukti. It, we can, the only way to bring about the destruction of mind is by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness. So don't mind about anything else. Don't even give room to the thought, am I doing it correctly or not? Hold, am I doing it correctly? Hold on to that I. That is correctly doing it. Right. There should be no doubt whatsoever. Yeah. Shouldn't doubt yourself. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, during your discussion, sometime around 10.22 uh, Central Time, um, I think that's when you're going over those categories, those, those four things. Uh, one of the anonymous devotee wrote a question, how should death of the body be understood in this context? The body is part of the Nama, Nama Uru Chitramam. It's part of the picture. 
So that the body be born or it, it was born one day, it's going to die one day. That we know. Body is not real. The ego that is aware of itself as I am, his body is itself not real. What is real is I am. So we should hold on to I am. We, death is no big deal. We have been born so many times, we have died so many times. Every life is just a dream. So when the dream starts, that we call that birth. When dream comes to an end, we call it death. But we are that which is beyond birth and death. That is, birth and death occurs for ego. Because ego takes itself to be a body, it seems to be born and die so many times. But the problem is, the body is born and dies. Ego itself does, doesn't die. Ego will not die until we know what we actually are. And to know what we actually are, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. So the real death, the death that we, that we are all seeking, is the death of mind, manonasa. And that can be achieved only by self-attentiveness. So hold on to self-attentiveness. Let the body come or let the body go. Nindrida, sendrida, ninebida, vindre. The body is all a part of this world appearance. So, of course, the world cannot appear without the body because we need a body through which to see a world. But even in dream, we, we never see any dream world without seeing ourselves as a body in that dream. Um, but we, we have woken up from so many dreams. Do we lament the death of the body? Last night I was dreaming, I was doing so many things. Then I woke up. That means that dream body has dead, died. Am I to lament the death of that dream body? Am I to hold a funeral for that for the dream body? No, because that dream body wasn't real. So likewise, this body is not real. So that's it's going to die one day. We can be sure of that. That one thing we can be absolutely sure of is we're going to die. So let us not be worried about birth and death. What is birthless and deathless? That is what we are seeking. That is I am. We ourselves are that which is birthless and deathless. We seem to be born and to die because we rise as ego and consequently take a, um, uh, take a, 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 a body as ourself. But actually, we are the deathless spirit. And someone just wrote a comment there. This man is a jnani. No <laughs> man is a jnani. Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. Jnana alone is the jnani. When we, we, we see people and we say, is this person a jnani? Is that person a jnani? No person is a jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. What can no pure, and jnani means what knows pure awareness. What can know pure awareness? Only pure awareness can know pure awareness because pure awareness cannot be an object of knowledge. So, Jnana alone is the jnani. And what is jnana? Bhagavan says in, in verse 13 of Uludunapdu, jnana mam tane me, oneself who is jnana alone is real. So you yourself are jnana. Don't look outside and say, oh, this man is a jnani, this man is an agnani. See yourself, then only you will see the true jnani. That is what Bhagavan's uh, teachings are all about. Thank you, you cannot see, so long as we see Bhagavan as a person, as a body, we are belittling Bhagavan because he is not the body, he is jnana itself. He appeared outwardly in human form in order to turn within. So we, we worship and adore his human form because 
That is the the vehicle by which he gave us these teachings. But the true way of worshipping Bhagavan is turning within, because he is that which is always shining in our heart's eye. He is jnana swarupa. He is the very embodiment of jnana, which is always shining in our heart's eye. So the true Ramana, Ramana puja is turning our attention within. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Marie, please go ahead with your question. Um, <clears throat> it's about um, when he says the, um, that every, all these are he. I thought that, you know, we say that the world is, um, is God, but that, um, you know, in, in this sentence, uh, only Brahman exists. The world doesn't exist. Brahman is the world. I thought that um, it wasn't... Not Brahman is the world. The world is Brahman. The world, is, yes, sorry. <laughs> but, and, but, but the rope is not a snake, but the snake is a rope. But he said, you said that uh, Bhagavan said, actually, the world is ego. Yes. So that's why, you know, when, when he says, all these are he, isn't the world ego, not really everything, God? Everything is ego. And what is ego? Investigate it and you'll find that it's nothing but that one fundamental, that pure awareness I am. So in that sense, we can say that the world is God. Or... Yes, yes, yes. That is, in, in uh, Upanishads, it's said all this is Brahman. But that is true. But Bhagavan introduces a, the missing link there. What is the missing link? Ego. All of this is ego. Ego is Brahman. That is, if ego, so long as ego is looking outwards, it seems to be ego. When it looks back within, it sees nothing but, it sees itself as Brahman. Yes, so as long as we see the world, it's, it's, it's more correct to say it's ego, it's not yes, God. Yes, we yes, can't say yes, oh, the world yes, is God. Yes, exactly, exactly. We see the world because we have risen as ego. Okay. And I so, have a, so long as yeah. we're looking outside, we are seeing ourselves as something other than what we actually are. Firstly, we're seeing ourselves as I am this body, and consequently, we're seeing all this world, which is nothing but ourselves. Turn back within, and we'll see ourselves as we actually are, which is pure awareness, pure jnana. Okay. And I have a, another question. Yes. When we say that because we dream, we cannot say that the world exists independently of us. Yes. But also it seems like, to me, we can't also say that the world does not exist. Like, we can't say whether it exists or not. The world does not exist. The world seems to exist. All we can say about the world is it seems to exist. Okay. Who, but the important point is, that's, what, that's one of the basic... Principles of Advaita, the world is mitya. It, just, it doesn't actually exist, it just seems to exist. But Bhagavan has asked us the important question. Merely saying the world is an appearance or it merely seems to exist isn't sufficient. Bhagavan asked the all-important question. To whom does it seem to exist? To whom does it appear? That is what we need to investigate. Yes. Okay, yeah, because when I hear it, I'm not convinced. 
to be to be honest. We we are to be honest. We are all convinced that I am this body, and we are all convinced that this world is real. Bhagavan tells us you are not the body; the world is not real. But though we, at a superficial level of our mind, we understand what Bhagavan is saying, we even are ready to accept it. But what is our experience? My experience is I am this body, and because I ex, what is actually real is only I am. So long as I experience myself as this body, this body seems to be real because if this body is I am, it has to be real since I am real. Since this body is just a small part of this vast universe, the whole universe seems to be real. So our experience will always be, but what we're experiencing is real. That's why when we're dreaming, we sometimes when we're dreaming, we may think, "Oh, this can't be real. This must be a dream." Even though we think that, it's just a thought that occurs in the dream. It still seems to be so real. We seem to be that dream body, and the dream world seems to be so real. And could it be that? It's different from a dream, you know, like that the dream is the dream, and this is. It it, it is it is possible, but there's no evidence that is the case. Why should we, if if we say this is not a dream, we are saying that a world actually exists out there, but we have no evidence that any world exists out there. Yes, and we can never know. No, on the other side of the sun. There could be a colony of pink elephants floating around in space. It's possible because nobody can ever see what's on the other side of the sun. Because if you go around there, there's still the other side. So maybe there's a herd of pink elephants there floating in space. Since we've got no evidence that there's a herd of pink elephants, why should we believe it? We have no evidence that there is any such thing as a world. So why should we believe that there is a world? We all think, oh, it's so obvious. It's so evident the world is there because we don't question the evidence. In a court of law, if 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 um, if evidence is produced that a certain person has committed a crime, the lawyer who the, the lawyer who is to defend him, he will question the evidence. He will say, no, no, this is this doesn't prove anything. He'll he'll pick holes in the evidence. And he'll show. He'll try his best to show that the evidence is not real evidence. If we are if we are seeking the truth and the truth alone, we need to question all evidence. Is it evident that there's any world? It seems to be evident, but if we question the evidence. There is absolutely no evidence that any world exists, because we know from our experience in sleep that the mind can create a world, and there's there's nothing that we experience in this state that we could not experience in sleep. People say, "Oh, but there's history, there's geography, there's all there's so much there's so much science." But all these things are there in dream. But people say, "No, but other people see it." So it's not only me who's seeing the world; so many other people are seeing the world. Ask anyone in your dream, are you seeing the world? They'll all say, yes, of course we're seeing the world. So they, we cannot find any evidence in this present state, but we cannot equally find in dream. So there's no evidence that any world actually exists. So why should we suppose something exists when there's no evidence? 
Because our whole existence depends on it. Yes, yes. Or the one we, we built. Yes, yes. But the illusory existence depends on this. So we cling to it very, very firmly. We're not ready to let go of it. That is our problem. Even when, even now when we've read Bhagavan and we say, yes, I believe what Bhagavan says is true. Yes, I believe I'm not the body. I believe the world is not real. But still, deep down, we are still firmly convinced I am this body. We are still firmly convinced this world is real. That is why our mind keeps on going out to this world. We keep on seeking happiness outside ourselves. If we really understood Bhagavan, our mind wouldn't go out. It would go only back within. So yeah. the measure of our faith in Bhagavan, the measure of our, of, our, of our clarity of understanding Bhagavan's teaching is to what extent our mind goes within. There's no use in saying, oh, I've, under, I've read Bhagavan, I've understood Bhagavan, I'm convinced by Bhagavan. If our mind is still going outwards, we are fooling ourselves. We haven't yet understood Bhagavan. We haven't, uh, our understanding is still at a very superficial level of the mind. So how does that, how can we make this superficial understanding into a deep inner clarity? There's only one way and one way alone. That is by looking deep within our own heart. The deeper we go within in investigating ourselves, the clearer all this will become. And the clearer it becomes, the less inclination will have to go outwards and the more inclination will have to go inwards. So we can gain sattvasana, the inclination to go inwards and to be as we actually are, and we can weaken our vishayavasana, the inclination to go outwards, only by patient and persistent practice of self-attentiveness. This is the only way. Not with changing our habits or... No, 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 no. You're just changing one thing for another thing. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. We need to... We need to change the one who has habits. Now the one who has habits is the one who is aware of itself as I am Marie or I am Michael or I am whoever. That is the, that is the problem. Bhagavan is concerned only with one problem. If you come to Bhagavan and say, oh, Bhagavan, I'm a terrible sinner. Bhagavan will say, big deal. Find out who you are. Bhagavan is least concerned about our sins, about, about the punya we've done, about the papa, the, the good deeds or the bad deeds. It's all irrelevant for Bhagavan. Bhagavan is concerned with one thing and one thing alone. Find out who am I. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Deepthi, you want to go ahead with your next question? The next the question. Yes. Namaskaram. Can you hear Namaskar me? Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Hello, Michael. Hello. Um, Michael, I'm um, to be very upfront and frank and just barefaced and open with you. I am struggling and I'm sure we all are, but for me, my, the suffering or whatever that I'm, that is, that has been my, like, that is my starting point. That's my present state is my, I understand, like, who is suffering, but I'm, I'm not able to see beyond the veil of suffering and the anxiety or the depression or whatever slew of things that this ego is cooking up for me. Like, that is, I am starting, like, you know, the veil, like, the self seems to be here and there's, like, this dark curtain and then I'm here. So I'm not able to pierce through to the, the eye that is suffering. 
you are the eye that is suffering. Uh, what yes. we need to pierce through to is the eye that underlies this eye. That is, the, the eye that is suffering is, uh, the, is the ego that is aware of itself as I am Dipti. That is what is suffering. Remove Dipti and you'll find that I in its pure condition is infinite happiness, infinite satisfaction. Michael, see, when you say that, that really, it's like adding salt to the wound. Because, <laughs> because how good, can Good, you... good, good. Let the, wound, no. let the wound be only when we really feel the be- that that is. Bhagavan says, when the world appears, the mind experiences dukkha. So, in other words, so long as we rise as ego, the world appears. So, if the rising of the ego is the cause of all dukkha, we have to be, we have to clearly understand. But, and sometimes suffering is the only way for us to understand. There is, we can never find satisfaction in this world because satisfaction is our own real nature, infinite satisfaction is our own real nature. Satisfaction means sukkah. Infinite satisfaction is our own real nature. And nothing less than infinite satisfaction will satisfy us. So as ego, we can never experience infinite satisfaction because ego is finite. So the very nature of ego is to be dissatisfied. Dissatisfaction is dukkha. And that's the only side I seem to know because I'm trying to like... That's the nature of the mind is restlessness and 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 dissatisfaction and yeah. like maybe temporarily it's okay and then yeah. immediately yeah yeah uh, and it's but, not really okay it's only a little bit less less suffering than at other times right right um so it's, it's so it's possible for so despite the condition of however wretched the mind might be, I can still be okay. Yes, you are always okay. You seem to be not okay because of the wrong identification. You are now identifying yourself with dipti, and so you're suffering. Separate yourself from dipti, and you'll be free of all suffering. Dipti is very bad news because Dipti brings you suffering. Any oh, person, oh. any any person that we take ourselves to be is bad news. Practice Dipti, practice. But I mean, practice, practice, practice. Addicted to suffering. I mean, am I just addicted to Dipti? I just can't kick her off. It's like a bad habit. No, when none of us are addicted, we, we all want to be free of suffering. The problem is, when we rise as ego, we feel something is lacking. We feel something is lacking in ourselves. So we try to fill up that lacking by seeking happiness outside ourselves. That is the fundamental error we make. Nothing, Sorry. We, nothing is okay. lacking. Nothing is lacking, but, but something seems to be lacking because we're looking outwards. So we need to stop looking outwards. We need to look back within because the, the infinite satisfaction that we are all seeking exists. Only, we are that. It exists only. We can find it only within ourselves. 
So my mind will know it. My mind will know that infinite satisfaction and that deep rest and peace. Your mind will never know it. When your mind knows it, it will cease to be mind and it will remain as that infinite satisfaction. So we must be ready to lose ourselves completely in that. So Michael... Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 16 of Upadesh Undia, he says, leaving external phenomena, manam tan oli the mind knowing its own form of light, that is ummayunachi, that is real awareness. Why does he say there the mind? Because it's a mind that needs to know its real nature. But as soon as the mind knows its real nature, it ceases to be mind and remains as that Oliuru, at that form of light, that pure awareness. And then Dipti will be at peace. Then there'll be no Dipti at all. Dip, mm-hmm. The problem is not for Dipti. The problem, mm-hmm. Dipti is not aware of any suffering. The problem mm-hmm. is for the ego that is aware of itself as I am Dipti. So the only way to be free of suffering is to free yourself from Dipti. Seeing ourselves without adjuncts is seeing God, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Rupadesh India. We need to see what we actually are. We need to hold on to I am. But Dipti is not holding on to you. You are holding on to Dipti. So how can you let go of Dipti? Only by holding on to I am. When you hold on to I am, Dipti will drop off auto- automatically. Because Dipti cannot hold on to you. It's you who are holding on to Dipti. Dipti is just Jada. Dipti is the name of a person, a body, which is Jada. Body means all the five sheaths, they're all Jada. Yes, I So the problem lies, don't blame Dipti. Dipti is innocent. Okay. You have a a guilty party. So I, I, the awareness, I, God, am guilty. No. Oh, not no, God. No, not God. I mean, I ego. <laughs> the I, but is aware of itself as I am Dipti. That is what is guilty. Right. So we need to separate. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludunapdu, Jada Udul Nane Nadu, the insentient body does not say I. That means it is not aware of itself as I. And body mm-hmm. there means all the five sheaths. Because he says in verse 5, uh, Udul Pancha Koza Udu. So what he refers to there is, uh, Jada Udul Nana Nadu, but in sentient body, all the five sheaths of Jada, as he says in verse 22 of Upadesh Undia. Satchit Udiyadu, Satchit does not rise. But in between, something rises, one one eye rises as the extent of a body. In other words, there's some eye that rises and says, I am this body. That eye is not the body because the body is Jada and therefore is not aware of itself as I. It's not Satchit, because Satchit doesn't rise. So it's neither this nor that. That's why Bhagavan says in between. In between means it's neither this nor that, but it borrows the properties of both. So it is Chichadagranti. It borrows the, its existence and its awareness from Satchit. So that is the Chit element. It borrows its form from a body. That is the Jada element. And because of the entanglement of the two, it is a knot. But that knot is neither chit nor jada. It is just an entanglement of the two. Mm. 
So how can we break this knot? How can we cut this knot? Only by separating chit from jada. How do we do that? Only by holding on to chit. Now we're holding on to what is jada. So we seem to be entangled with it. Let go of jada and hold on to chit. Only by holding on to chit, that to the fundamental awareness I am, can we free ourselves from everything that is jada. So mm. the person we seem to be will drop off to the extent to which we hold on to I am. So what Bhagavan has taught is it's so, so simple, so, so, so perfect. It is simple. The problem is we, um, we don't yet want, we are not yet willing to let go. Why, why do we find it difficult to hold on to I am? Because we're not willing to let go of this person whom we now seem to be. And that is because we don't practice enough, right, Michael? I mean, yes, yes. We just have to oh. practice and practice yes. more. That's why Bhagavan said, the whole problem, what is the cause of all this? Abhichara, non-investigation, pramada. Right. But even when I'm like, even when I try to practice, it's just right, right. I guess it's just the trying is the most we can we do. We have because to go on trying. It it seemed it does seem to be a struggle at first because we, the Bhagavan often used to say the whole spiritual life is nothing but a battle going on in our own heart between right. satvasana and vishaya vasanas. We have to decide. We want to be swayed only by satvasana, not by vishaya vasanas. So long as we allow ourselves to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas, we are feeding and nourishing them. We need to firmly hold on to self-attentiveness, thereby feed and nourish the satvasana and deprive the vishaya vasanas of, the, of, um, of the, the food they depend on for their survival. Thank you, Michael. Yes, 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 um, yes. Thank you so much. So um, it seems difficult to us, but remember, Bhagavan has said, there's nothing easier than this. Right, right, right. So when we say it's difficult, we need to understand it seems difficult because of our lack of will. That is why Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. It's that love is the key to it. Mm -hmm. So happiness is possible. It is possible, yes, yes. Well, shortly before Bhagavan passed away, someone <coughs> asked Bhagavan, is there no hope? Bhagavan said, yeah. yes, there is hope, there is hope. There's hope for all of us. But as he says at the end of the 18th, about 12th paragraph of Nana, after talking, giving the analogy of the, the prey in the jaws, jaws of a tiger, just like the prayer in the jaws of a tiger cannot escape. Those who have been caught in the glance of Guru's grace will surely be saved by him and will never be forsaken. Eninum Guru Katya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadakavendum. Nevertheless, it is necessary to follow unfailingly in the path shown by Guru. So Bhagavan has given us all the assurance that is required, but we must do our little part. We must try our best to follow Bhagavan's path. He will do everything else, but we must. We we when we are when we are clinging to self-attentiveness, we are thereby surrendering ourselves to Him. How can He? We expect Him to save us if we're not even ready to surrender ourselves to Him. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, <Yeah>. Michael. <clears throat>
last two questions. Um, Anand, go ahead. Anand. Michael, yeah, I was enjoying every one of the many Tamil words that you so beautifully brought out. Uh, the, the meanings, you know. My uh, pronunciation may not be so good, but <laughs> yeah, right from orderlite to chair or are, you know, they come out with uh, with such a, you know, them they present themselves, you know, so beautifully coming from. Well, these you. are Bhagavan's words, so they have their own beauty. Don't blame oh. me; it's all Bhagavan. <laughs> well, I have one comment, uh, you know, just a thought on the word orderlite. Yes. Urutalai, one of the meanings that you mentioned also is Urutalai Kama, that is one sided love. Yes. Right? So we, we need one sided this, love. We need, well, yeah. no. <laughs> so the Urutalai in this verse, could it also mean that um, this conclusion that um, there is a Shakti, you know, there is, uh, I am saying the world, that is one sided because the world does not say I exist. <laughs> yeah, that that is not the main meaning. But so many times, Bhagavan, we we can we can see that in Bhagavan's words are extremely deep in in meaning and implication. So sometimes there are meanings that are suggested by words. It's not actually we we can't actually interpret the words like that. But that that meaning is suggested by that word. So uh, there a meaning has struck you. It's not the actual meaning of a verse, but that word has reminded, that, that word orutale has reminded us that we have a one-sided love affair with this world. This world doesn't love us. We love the world. This body doesn't love us. We love the body. So yes, that's a very nice meaning. Very, very beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> We, we, we can't force that into a translation, but that word suggests that idea. That shows the power of Bhagavan's words. But the words are saying far more than the surface meaning. They are, his, his words suggest so many things, and it brings so much, it brings so much clarity to our mind when we dwell on Bhagavan's words. They they bring they 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 say so much more than the word says than the than the surface meaning of the word. So that's very beautiful. That's a very nice way of taking it. Yeah, I mean that 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 word reminds us of that. It's not the meaning of that word, but that word reminds us of that. That's very very true. Very true. So you, meaning in other meanings uh, for mudal, mm. which uh, you know one can you know. Just contemplate and enjoy, you know. Yes, like, uh, yes. Model is also an investment. Yes. Yeah. So likewise, yeah. you know, you can. It, it, it's very. Yeah. It does that it. is our. That is our capital. Yeah. So we need to be wise businessmen and make use of the capital. Now we're wasting the capital. We're squandering our capital on um, attending to this world. We need to re re uh, regain our capital by turning back within. Thank you again. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you Michael. Um, Ram Tanati, uh, last question that will conclude today's session. Ram, please go ahead. Uh, Michael, uh, quick question. Yes. Um, 
so sometimes I do see that the thoughts do become uh, uh, overwhelming, almost uh, consider it's like a nuclear reaction. There is no control. Yes. Uh, it just keeps uh, compounding itself, building itself and mushrooming extremely fast. Yes. Um, in, in that situation, uh, either chanting or who am I completely becomes ineffective. And I just uh, seem to be, uh, become the slave of the thoughts that, uh, that are driving the emotions. So even in that situation, you see that there is a hope that if I keep at it with who am I, uh, that I can just be a witness to the nuclear reaction that is in progress. But the thoughts that rise, they are nothing but it, it's Vishaya Vasanas that are rising in the form of thoughts. Vishaya Vasanas are inclinations. Inclinations have no strength of their own. Whatever, in, whatever power the Vasanas seem to have is the power that we have invested in them. We have invested our capital in, in these Vishaya Vasanas. So they seem to be very, the capital of our attention. We've invested in these Vishaya Vasanas. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by Vishaya Vasanas, the stronger those Vishaya Vasanas become. Supposing you've got a bad habit, supposing you like ladu, and you know eating too much ladu is not good for you because too much sugar is not good. It's going to create, sooner or later, it'll create a diabetic condition or something. But you like laddu so much. So you, 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 on the one hand, you, you, you know eating laddu is not good. So you've got an inclination to avoid eating laddu. But on the other hand, you like it very much. So you've got an inclination to eat it. So you have a choice. Either you allow yourself to be swayed by that liking for ladu and eat ladu, or you uh, allow yourself to be swayed by the liking to avoid uh, overeating sweet things. So you, uh, the more you eat ladu, the stronger that ladu vasana will become. But on the other hand, the, the more you refrain from eating ladu by allowing yourself to be swayed by the vasana to maintain your health and not to overeat, not to overindulge in sweets, but stronger that vasana will become. So the more you indulge in ladu, the more difficult it becomes for you to avoid that temptation to eat one more ladu and just one more and one more and just, okay, just one more. But the more you, you allow yourself to be swayed by the, the vasana of constraint to avoid it, okay, no, Maybe tomorrow, but not today. At least today I won't eat ladu. And you put it off and put it off. And you thereby strengthen that, that, that inclination to constrain yourself from eating ladu. That becomes strong and the inclination to eat ladu becomes weak. In exactly the same way with all Vishaya Vasanas on one hand and sat vasana on the other hand. The more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more the sat vasana is strengthened and consequently all vishaya vasanas are weakened because we're not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. But if we allow ourselves to be swayed by them, then they'll seem to be terribly powerful and we'll say, oh, I'm powerless. But we have to remember whatever power the vasanas have is power we have given them. So we who have given them power can deprive them of power. So this is, this is 
what is called Ichyasvatantra. We have that freedom of will. It's up to us. But no, no vasana can force us to be swayed by it. Why we are swayed by our vasanas? Because we like to be swayed by them. Yes, I like. Why do I allow myself to eat more ladu? Because I like ladu. I want to be, I want to be swayed by that vasana. So we, 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 we need to be willing to give up our liking for everything other than ourselves. This is why Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti is nothing but that satvasana, that inclination just to hold on to our being and thereby to subside in our being. The, the, the inclination to go after other things, that is desire, that is raga. So the, by, by strengthening the bhakti, we are also strengthening the vairagya, the, the, the inclination to go after all these vishaya vasanas is weakened. The inclination to be swayed by these vishaya vasanas is weakened. That is vairagya. The weakness, the, the weakening of the vishaya vasanas is vairagya. The strengthening of the satvasana is bhakti. Bhakti and vairagya are the keys to this to success in this path. Thank you, Michael. And that they uh, will come only by following this path, by right. clinging to self-attentiveness. Thank you, Michael. So I think we'll conclude with Shohan's question. And Shohan, go ahead. Do you want a clarification on the process? So, uh, Michael, my question is, um, for the ocean, for example, to know its own size, it has to send out waves to shores, right? Uh, to say, uh, you know, um, metaphorically. But uh, for an infinite ocean, those waves will never find the shore, right? So any outward going signals are useless for an infinite being to know its own self. So for us, for self-investigation, whatever methods we've used so far to investigate the outside world is useless to, for self-investigation, correct? Yes, that is, to know, knowing anything other than ourself is a process of knowing. There needs to be, there needs to be, there needs to be a, a means of knowing, an action of knowing. That is, we, we, we know the world by seeing it, by hearing it, by tasting it, by touching it, by smelling it. So knowing anything other than ourselves, the knowing of anything else involves an action, an outward move, going movement of our mind. But to know ourselves, we need not do anything. We know ourselves just by being ourselves. Tanai iritale, tanai aridalam. Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesha India, uh, being ourself alone is knowing ourself. So to know ourself, we don't need to do anything. We just need to be as we are. We, we need to give up doing. We need to cease rising as ego. Our, our knowledge of ourself seems to be obscured by our having risen as ego. So in order to know ourselves, we need to just stop rising as ego. In other words, stop allowing our attention to move away from ourselves towards other things. Uh, 
The movement of our attention away from ourselves towards other things gives us knowledge of other things, but conceals our knowledge of ourselves. To know ourselves, we need to stop moving outwards. We need to subside, sink back within. Because we ourselves are infinite knowledge, infinite awareness. So we don't need to do anything to know ourselves. We just need to be ourselves. One of the components of his question was, uh, so all the previous methods of inquiry for outside world is useless for self-investigation. Yes, yes. That is, whatever, whatever we have learned about the world from science and philosophy and history and geography, we may have accumulated vast amounts of learning. It's of no use whatsoever to turn within. In fact, often having lots of knowledge about many things is an obstacle. Because we, we don't need to know a lot. We don't need to be a, a brilliant... Um, mathematician or physicist or philosopher or anything. We just need to, because the only thing we need to know is who am I? And for that, we need no knowledge about anything else. Bhagavan's teachings gives us a knowledge of sorts. What Bhagavan's teachings is giving us, Bhagavan, Bhagavan's teachings are not knowledge per se. They are point, it's pointing us in the right direction where knowledge can be found. Not, but knowledge of ourselves can be found only within ourselves. It cannot be found in books. It cannot be found in the Vedas. It cannot be found in the Upanishads. It cannot be found in the Bible or the Quran. It cannot be found in Ulivdhanapadu. It cannot be found in Upadeshundya. It cannot be found in Arunachastutipanchakam. It can be found only within ourselves. Why Ulivdhanapadu, Upadeshundya, Nana, Anmabidde, Arunachastutipanchakam, why these are useful? Because they're pointing our attention back at ourselves. Stop looking outward. Look within. That's what all of Bhagavan's work, all of Bhagavan's teachings are telling us. Stop looking outwards. Look within. Because knowledge, true knowledge can be found only by looking within. Beli videngale bittu. Giving up external phenomena. Manam tan oli uru odale. The mind knowing its own form of light that alone is unmayunachi. That alone is real knowledge. That alone is real awareness. So we need to give up everything. We need to. That's why Bhagavan says at the end of the 16th paragraph of Nana, a time will come when we have to forget everything that has been learned. So all our learning is of no use if we don't turn within. The only thing that is useful to know is to know Bhagavan's teaching because Bhagavan's teachings are to turning us within. Okay. Also, if you know the if you know the the Vedanta, if you know the Upanishads and so on, they are also telling us you are that. But trouble is, people miss the point. People have studied Vedanta all their life, and they still don't understand. But all that is, they think they can get knowledge from the Upanishads, from the Bhashyas of Shankara, and from the, from all these texts. Bhagavan says in the 16th paragraph of Nana, no knowledge cannot be found in books. Knowledge can be found only within ourselves. That is the knowledge we, we are seeking. That is knowledge of ourselves. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa put it very nicely in his usual homely way. He said, the Panchangam will tell you when it's going to rain. 
But no matter how hard you squeeze the pa pages of the Panchangam, you cannot get a drop of water. That means the knowledge cannot be attained from the books. The knowledge can be attained only from deep within our own heart. The books are useful to the extent they point us within. Thank you, Michael. Love you. Thank you, Michael. Um, so, Robert, did you have a comment? Just one, just one question, Michael. What was that you used the word bhakti, uh, love of self, love of the search for self, yes. love of self. You used the word bhakti. What was the next word you used? I, I couldn't get it. Vairagya. Vairagya. Raga means passion. It means, in this context, it means desire. How do you spell that word? How do you spell that word? Well, well, there are two words. I'll, 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 I'll tell you. The reason, I'm, reason I'm asking this is because I think Dipti, the answer to her is loving that search, loving that self more than anything else is what exactly, you're after. Exactly. And if you, if you could get those three words for her yes. and for me, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Well, but the word is Vairagya, but I'll explain how that word comes to be. That is, Raga means passion. In this context, it means desire. Viraga is freedom from desire. The quality of being free of desire is vairagya. So, so vairagya is desirelessness. Bhagavan has defined desirelessness. So love, love, love of desirelessness. No, that is we must, if we have love for ourselves, to the extent to which we love to know ourselves, we'll be free of desire to know anything else. So bhakti and vairagya are the two sides of the same coin. And Bhagavan gives a beautiful definition of vairagya in the 11th paragraph of Nana. He says, not attending to anything other than ourselves is vairagya or nirasa. Nirasa means the same as vairagya. It means, uh, asa means desire. Nirasa means no desire, no freedom. How do, you, how do you spell that word too? I'd like to look it up and get uh, more definition. Nir is N-I-R. Asa is long A, S long A. <clears throat> so I, I will spell the two words for you. Nirasa you, you can actually you find it if you do you do you know my translation of of uh, nana of who am i yeah. Yeah. if you go there go to the 11th paragraph in the middle of the 11th paragraph there's a sentence and i've used the i've used the sanskrit words there so it is vairagya or nirasa so if you go there you can see the spelling of it thank you and beautiful definition Bhagavan gives, not attending to anything other than ourself. That is Vairagya or Nirasa. Attending to ourself, that is Bhakti. By Bhakti, you mean the Svatma Bhakti. Love to attend to oneself. That is the true, that is the, the, the pinnacle of Bhakti. Of course, loving God is something other than ourself. That is also Bhakti. But it is, uh, as Bhagavan says in verse 8 of Upadeshundiya, Rather than meditating upon God or considering God to be something other than ourselves, having love for him or meditating on him as 
not Ababan Asaf. That means as I alone, that is of all that is best. That is the best of all. So we're real. <laughs> yes, yes, I quite agree. <laughs> uh, so the best bhakti of all is love for ourselves because God is always shining in our, God is most intimately present, shining in our heart as I. It's only because of our lack of, of, of understanding of God's real nature that we go seeking God outside. What was that other word you said um, beside bhakti? I think you said bhakti and then another word. What was that other word? I'm trying to find that. Bairagya. No, well, no, I'm talking no. to, I'm um, sorry. In Nirasha. Um, oh, was that it? Say it again. Nirasha. No, no, uh, you, you said Swatma Bhakti. Swatma. Right. Swatma. Swa means one's own. Atma means self. Swatma Bhakti means love for one's own self. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Swatma Bhakti. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. A synonym for Swatma Bhakti is another term that Bhagavan often used, which is Sat Vasana. Vasana means inclination. Sat means being. So the inclination to attend only to our being and thereby to be as we actually are, that is Sat-Vasana, that is Swatma-Bhakti. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya <laughs>